would like to read with you this morning from Matthew chapter 2, the familiar story of the wise men of the Magi, and the uh, text should appear on your screen in a second. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. On Christmas Eve, we looked at the shepherds who were nearby in the fields, really close to Bethlehem, and the urgency and the haste with which they came to visit the newborn king. Today our eyes are lifted from those nearby fields and they extend to the outer borders, to a certain extent, to the ends of the world. And one of the things that I had never really thought much about until the last week or two as I was thinking of this passage was, why in the world would wise men, probably some kind of magician, astrologers, be at all interested in some king in some other land. Why would that interest you in the first place? And even if it did interest you, why in the world would you undertake a trip like this? What would motivate you to do that? And in doing a little research uh, this week, I, I think I can explain that just a little bit. And the reason for that is, I think, that in the world, in the Roman world of the time, there was this expectation that some kind of a king was going to arise. A couple of the Roman historians write about it, and I have a couple of quotes. The first one is from a historian named Suetonius, and I put his quote up here so you can read with me. A firm persuasion had long prevailed through all the East that it was fated for the empire of the world at that time to devolve on someone who should go forth from Judea. So all through the East, 
there was this idea. This prediction referred to a Roman emperor as the event showed, but the Jews, applying it to themselves, broke out into rebellion, and having defeated and slain their governor, rooted the lieutenant of Syria, a man of consular rank, who was advancing to his assistance and took an eagle, the standard of one of his legions. When you read these historical um, writings of this time, reflections on this time, you'll notice that the Jews are often quite denigrated because they seem to think that this king was going to come from their ranks. There's also a record from the historian Seneca, philosopher and historian Seneca, that in Athens there were magi or wise men who were sacrificing to the memory of Plato. You know, I'm sure he wrote, that Plato had the good fortune, thanks to his careful living, to die on his birthday after exactly completing his 81st year. For this reason, wise men of the East, who happened to be in Athens of that time, sacrificed to him after his death, believing that his length of days was too full for a mortal man, since he had rounded out the perfect number of nine times nine. So this was maybe not even the only instance of wise men coming from the east searching for this thing that was going to happen, this king that was to be born. And then there was a, uh, it, at this, almost the same time as Jesus was born, Augustus, the Roman Empire, who you remember is mentioned, the Roman Emperor who's mentioned in uh, Luke 2, was being hailed as the Savior of the world. And Virgil, the Roman poet, wrote this about looking forward to the new age. Now comes the great new age. From heaven the young man is, man is sent. He who holds the divine life in himself, who sees God and is himself seen by God. This young man will rule the world, for whom the strength of the Father provides his peace. Moreover, few evils will persist then, those evils which required men to labor and to wage wars. Then the young man in his new age will make it so that there will be no labors and no wars. The sailors and the fishermen will depart from their ships, and the farmers will abandon their fields. The earth itself will provide all things for all people. So living in the world of this time, the Mediterranean world, the world of the Roman Empire, was this idea, this theme, that a king was going to be born, and that king was going to bring about the peace for all nations, the peace for the world, where the earth itself, as this last quote has just said, will provide all things for all people. So then Matthew says, and he, he fits right into this, into this theme, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. The shepherds had come with haste. It was just a short trip from the fields nearby Bethlehem to the manger. The wise men likely traveled five to seven hundred miles. It would have taken them probably at least several months. 
And this trip was undertaken after a lifetime of careful study in the stars and in the astrology and in the legends and in the, the, the writings of the time. Rigorous scientific and religious discipline. They would have been men who throughout their lifetime, based on the way they lived, had established a reputation for integrity and for wisdom in their community. The trip itself was long. It required the choice every day to load up the animals and start walking one step at a time instead of turning back at a certain point. It was a very deliberate one. Going over a long period of time, maybe even a lifetime, fueled by their longing to see and worship the new king and their longing for this great new age of justice and of peace where the earth itself will provide all things for all people. You've probably heard that early this morning Bishop Archbishop Desmond Tutu passed away. South Africa's Nobel Prize winning activist for racial justice and LGBTQ rights, retired Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town. He was 90 years old, having lived a long life, born and raised in the apartheid of South Africa, having suffered it in all kinds of ways on his own body, in his own spirit, in his own family, in his own community, and working for all of his life to, for justice, for righteousness, for reconciliation, and for truth. And I have two quotes of his that talk about this kingdom of of God that Jesus came to bring and the way we as a church should be living in the world. Here's the first one. We must say that Jesus Christ has inaugurated the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of justice, peace, and love, or fullness of life, that God is on the side of the oppressed, the marginalized, and the exploited. He's the God of the poor, of the hungry, of the naked, with whom the church identifies and has solidarity. The church in South Africa, and I would add, and he would too, I think, worldwide, must be the prophetic church, which cries out, Thus saith the Lord, speaking up against injustice, violence, against oppression and exploitation, against all that dehumanizes God's children and makes them less than what God intended them to be. Then the second one. In South Africa, the church of God must sustain the hope of a people who've been tempted to grow despondent because the powers of this world seem rampant. The church of God must say that despite all appearances, this is God's world. He cares and cares enormously. His is ultimately a moral universe that we inhabit and that right and wrong matter 
and that the resurrection of Jesus Christ proclaims that right will prevail. This deep longing that was in the heart and mind and life of Desmond Tutu was also, I'm sure, in the heart and minds and lives of the wise men of the Magi. After this whole lifetime of study, they saw this star in the east, and they said, we have to go towards that. We have to find out. We have to find out what's happening. There's this king that's been born. We are certain of it. And this is the king that everybody knows is going to bring this kingdom of peace. And we need to go and worship him. And thinking about this reminded me of a well-known passage from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 65. And I thought I would read it to you because, read it with you, because I think these words express what we are all longing for and what Jesus Christ came to inaugurate. Isaiah 65 the verses 17 through 25. For behold, says God, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old And the sinner, a hundred years old, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, which is the essence of injustice. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. On Christmas Eve, I invited or urged you to come to this Jesus with haste, with urgency, like the shepherds did. This morning, the day after Christmas, I urge you to come with deliberation with intentionality, with the one day after another journey of a lifetime, or as Eugene Peterson says, 
a long obedience in the same direction. With discipline, with commitment, you and me as individuals, we as family units, we as a church community, because, and this, there are dozens of these quotes from Desmond Tutu around about this whole concept and this idea of Ubuntu, this South African concept of Ubuntu. I am because we are. I am because we are. Right through the society of the Mediterranean world of the time of Jesus was this deep, deep longing for shalom. And the wise men somehow knew about that. And they came. And they offered their lives. And they worshipped. And all of us know, if we stop and think about it for any moment at all, that deep within the fabric of each one of us and our society is this longing for shalom, especially now in these days. Christ is born. The kingdom has come. The shalom is sure. And the invitation to you and to me and to us together is to make that journey. To meet this Jesus. And once we meet him, to live the kind of a life that a Desmond Tutu did. To bring justice and truth and reconciliation for all. Amen.